Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. This morning we are beginning Romans chapter 8. We'll look at the first four verses where Paul writes these words. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we ask your blessing on the preaching of your word. We pray that your gospel would uh, change us, that we would feel the, the power of your promise of salvation. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. According to my wife, I rely too heavily on GPS. I use it for getting around town. Even though I've lived here for 10 years, I can't seem to find anything without plugging into the phone, and it worries her sometimes. But on the whole, I think GPS is a blessing that has saved many marriages because I reflect on the tensions in relationships that used to be so common when maps were read imperfectly and, and men in the driver's seat found themselves lost. Encouraged by their wives to seek counsel from others, they refused, not wanting to, to have anyone tell them where to go or what to do. And as a result, the conflicts were constant. And now we've been spared from all of that. But if you remember those dark times, you know that uh, there's something in us that doesn't like to ask for help. There's something about our Constitution that doesn't like to admit when we're lost, when we don't know what to do. We like to be self-sufficient. Self-sufficient people sometimes have to ask for help. We come to the point where we recognize we don't know what to do. We, we, have, to, we, we have to reach outside of ourselves. But when self-sufficient people ask for help, they ask for a specific kind of help. The kind of help that self-sufficient people want is knowledge-based. Explain what I need to do, and then I will do it. I don't know everything. I don't understand everything. Occasionally, I need to have it explained. That's great. I can ask. Tell me what to do, and then let me do it. I still feel independent. I don't need any hand-holding. There's something admirable about that. There's something uh, you can admire in a person who is unwilling to have things done for them, like who wants to be independent, who wants to, to, to fend for themselves. And that's a sign of maturity. Right? We want to be people like that. But self-sufficiency sometimes is an illusion. There are self-sufficient people who represent themselves in court which is not a great idea. 
There are self-sufficient people who diagnose their own maladies with the help of Google and then treat their own ailments, which is not a good idea. When you're in over your head, you need to look for a different kind of help. When you need more than just information, you need a different kind of help. You don't want an explanation, merely. What you need is, honestly, someone to do it for you. When you feel insufficient, when you realize that you're not up to it, the sweetest words that you can hear from an expert are, stick with me and I'll take care of it. Just stick with me and I'll do it for you. Ordinarily, we like to be independent, we like to be self-sufficient, but in moments when we're overwhelmed, in moments when we realize that, that we're not up to the task, that there's no way that a little bit of information will get us through, then we're grateful to have someone come alongside us who is willing to do it for us, who is willing to take care of it. It is astonishing to me how self-sufficient people of faith can be. We know there's a spiritual problem. We're not in denial. We imagine that the solution to that problem is knowledge-based. Yeah, there's a spiritual problem, and I need someone to explain to me what I should do, and then I'll do it, and then I'll take care of it. We tell ourselves that the Bible is a book of instructions that God gave us so that whenever we don't know what to do, we can look it up and get some knowledge, and then we'll know how to act, and that will take care of things. And let's face it, that is a step up. Because there are a lot of spiritually minded people who recognize there is a spiritual reality and a spiritual problem, but then imagine that the solution to that problem is going to be found by some sort of a highly individualistic spiritual quest that's more about self-expression than self-discovery. So at least acknowledging that the Bible is a source for real and true knowledge, that's good. But the problem is, But as an advice manual, the Bible presents a challenge. Because the Bible is full of advice that you can't possibly apply. The Bible gives you knowledge that you are still unable to act upon. And your failure to implement the Bible's program is actually designed to reveal how insufficient you are. To bring you to that realization that the kind of help you need is more and just some information, that you actually do need someone to do this for you. You need someone to say, stick with me, and I'll take care of it all. That's what God does. At every step of the way, God does not just advise us on how to be saved. God saves us, which is different, and so much more. He actually saves As long as you are with Jesus Christ, you don't have to worry. Everything flows from that one relation with Christ. If you are in Christ, he will take care of it all. He will do it all. You are insufficient, but he is all sufficient. Simply put, 
salvation comes to those who are in Christ. Salvation belongs to those who are in Christ. And everything that is promised in the gospel, every good thing from beginning to end, belongs to us because we are in union with Christ. And we've been looking through the book of Romans for all of this year now, for months and months. We're in chapter 8 now, but we've seen earlier the way that Paul is building up to this moment, this text that we're looking at this morning. You can remember back as we worked through chapters 3, 4, and 5, the focus there was primarily on the guilt of sin, the way that we are guilty of transgressing the law of God. We are actually uh, condemned as a result of that. In chapters 6 and 7, we've seen not only the problem of the guilt of our sin, but also the power of sin over us in our lives. It's not just that we stand condemned before the judge for our transgressions, but also because of the corruption of sin, we have been changed. We have been impaired, corrupted, blinded, made incapable of acting even on what we know to be good because the power of sin continues to rule and to reign all around us. And now at the beginning of Romans 8, Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation. The therefore indicates that what is about to follow sums up, is built upon what has come before. All that that has been said to us about the guilt of sin and about the power of sin now comes to a head and we see that the only solution to those problems is to be in Christ. The only way to overcome the guilt of sin, to deal with the guilt of sin, to to break the power of sin, is to be in Christ Jesus. Because Christ clears us from the guilty verdict of condemnation by justifying us, and Christ liberates us from the power of sin and death by sanctifying us. Justification, sanctification, glorification, all of it, part of the work that God does. All of it, what we have because we are in Christ. Verse 1, verse 2, Paul repeats that phrase, in Christ Jesus, to remind us that all of it, from justification to sanctification, but if you want to go farther back to election and predestination, if you want to go farther forward to, to glorification itself, all of it, all of it, comes to us as a result of the fact that we are in Christ Jesus. Stay with me and I will give you everything. That's what Christ says to us in the gospel. Union with Christ is the crucial relation in all of this. The thing to hold on to, union with Christ. If you can't remember the the. the the fancy Latinate theological terms, just remember to be in Christ. To be in Christ is everything. 
Because for those who are in Christ, the sentence of condemnation is removed. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Out of that union with Christ, the many benefits of salvation flow and justification is a key. Paul has been speaking of justification by faith. Justification is the act which essentially cancels out the guilty verdict that has been rendered against us. It's not an unjust verdict. We are sinners. We are guilty. We have trampled over the law of a holy God. So the condemnation is just. In our Sunday school class, we've been working through the Westminster Confession. We're in chapter 2 right now. We saw last week a, a phrase in the confession, speaking of the holiness of God, the confession says, God will by no means clear the guilty. God will by no means clear the guilty. Simply put, God is holy and just. If he saves us, it's not going to be by deciding not to enforce the law. It's not going to be because God decides, hey, you know what? Maybe justice is not such a big deal. Maybe I can just turn a blind eye. That's not what a holy and just God does. Now, I understand that human justice, sometimes it does work that way. Right? You understand that, that whether or not you are arrested for a crime and prosecuted for it and, and go to jail depends a lot on, on who you are and where you commit that crime. Because there are some laws that are enforced in some jurisdictions and not in others. If you roll up a joint and you go smoke it in downtown Sioux Falls, the consequences will be different than if you go to Denver and do the same thing. Right? Laws are enforced differently. People turn a blind eye. In some states, sanctuary cities will protect you from being deported. And in other states, sanctuary cities will prevent the government from taking away your guns. We can decide selectively what laws to enforce and what laws not to enforce. Prosecutors have discretion over what cases they will prosecute and which ones they won't. You may be guilty, but if it doesn't seem like there's enough evidence, it may not even go to trial. That's human justice. And we recognize the limitations. God's justice doesn't work that way. The plan of salvation is not that, that sometimes for some people, God decides not to prosecute God decides you can't be a stickler for the law all the time. Occasionally, you just have to let people get away with stuff. That's not what's going on here. If a holy and just God is going to save, then his way of salvation is going to have to deal with the reality of guilt and somehow deal with the just condemnation. If anyone is to be saved despite their guilt, it will only be because the demands of justice have been met through some other means. The other means happen to be the death of Jesus Christ. It's an extreme solution that the Son of God would have to take on human flesh, live amongst us, and then be crucified and killed for our sins seems like it's a bit much. But if it seems extreme, perhaps it's only because we haven't taken seriously the extent of the problem that the cross had to solve. The interesting thing is, 
You don't have to understand the intricacies of justification. You don't have to understand the the complexities of the theology behind it in order to be justified. What you have to be in order to be justified is you have to be in Christ Jesus, united to Christ by faith. And that's all. For those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. We are sinners. The condemnation is just. But if we are in Christ, that penalty has been paid by him. For those who are in Christ Jesus, there's also freedom from the power of sin and death as well. Verse 2, Paul writes that the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. In chapter 7, he contrasted the law of the mind with the law of sin. And in that comparison, it seemed as if the law of sin was, was all-powerful. But now a new law has entered into the discourse, the law of the spirit of life, which changes everything. It is true that we will never overcome the power of sin through our own efforts, through our own desire to be good, knowing the right thing, and then waking up one morning and saying, I'm going to start being good. That's not going to do it. But now Paul says there is a power that can break the power of sin and death. And it is the power of the Spirit. The law of the Spirit of life. Which again flows from our union with Christ Jesus. There was a ruling power in life, sin, that has been broken by Christ at the cross. And he has given us the gift of his spirit so that the spirit can work in us to overcome the power of sin over us. Because this is Reformation Sunday, I think it's appropriate to see the the, the great doctrine of justification held up in this way and the power over sin that we have over this, uh, through the Spirit. But it's also interesting to me to see in this passage that what Paul relates as he summarizes, encapsulates our salvation, he, he relates a deeply Trinitarian salvation for us in which the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all are active in the work of salvation. He says, God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So the whole framework of salvation that Paul describes is is a work of the Trinity, the triune God. First, There is a plan of salvation that is decreed by God the Father who does what the law could not do. Laws can measure iniquity. The law can serve as a yardstick to show us where we've sinned. But what the law doesn't do is the law doesn't prosecute the case. and The law certainly can't answer it, the charge. There's a limit by the nature of the law to what law can perform. In a sense, the law is there to to measure whether or not you have been obedient or disobedient. And that's as far as the law goes. But the Father goes farther than that. He accomplishes what the law could not accomplish. In Acts 13, preaching to the Christians in Antioch, Paul describes it this way. 
says, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Christ, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. But God's plan of salvation doesn't just like deal with the, the, the problem of sin. It goes beyond that and accomplishes much more than the law could ever accomplish. How he accomplishes this salvation is interesting. God, the Father, sends his Son into the world, his incarnate Son, Jesus Christ, to save his people from their sins. And then the Son, having saved us, gives us the gift of the Spirit so that we might walk according to the Spirit as we are being sanctified in Christ. So you see the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, all of them working together in this cause of salvation. And there are two highlights that Paul brings out. One of them here is the incarnation. He's giving us not just the the doctrine of the Trinity, but he's also touching on the importance of Christ's incarnation as well. He speaks of Christ having come into the world, having taken on what he calls the likeness of sinful flesh and having uh, defeated sin in the flesh. These are significant things for Paul to say. Jesus, the Son, the second person in the Trinity, the one through whom all things were made, becomes one of us becomes a human being. Paul says he takes on the likeness of sinful flesh. It's an interesting expression. This is the only time in Scripture where these words are used to describe the incarnation, that Jesus took on the likeness of sinful flesh. And we know that Jesus was himself without sin. So what does it mean to say that he took on the likeness or the appearance of sinful flesh? What's The point, well, when the Father sent the Son into this world of sin and misery and death, he sent him in a way that brought him into the closest possible relation to sinful humanity. Brought Christ into as near a relation as it was possible to come to us human beings without sin. So that he functioning, as the author of Hebrews says, as our high priest, can represent us fully as one who knows what it's like to be a human being, who understands our afflictions, our concerns, and our temptations. He is like us, as close to us as it is possible to be without sin. Which is like saying, uh, he's like what we were meant to be. Such is the nature of his humanity. For the transcendent God who made all things, to whom all things are subject, to humble himself in this way, again, may seem extreme. But it points to what was necessary in order to bring about our salvation. We think about salvation, we think of it oftentimes as as like uh, a flick of the wrist, a wave of the magic wand, God just deciding, you know what, I was going to condemn people for sin, but now I'm not. Instead, a great, inconceivable sacrifice was necessary to bring about salvation. And despite what it cost, he did it. He did it out of love. 
also revealed here is the purpose for which Christ came. He came for sin, Paul says. His purpose in the incarnation, specifically, he's coming in human flesh with a mission to defeat sin. He has come into the system, as it were, to overcome the great oppressor of the system. And his conquest, his conquest comes through sacrifice. Through his death, Paul says, he condemned sin in the flesh. In other words, he bore the penalty, the condemnation, the indictment was carried out against him. And yet, he was innocent. His death was a grave injustice. Sin and death had no legitimate power over him. When we speak of Christ having power over the grave, oftentimes we imagine that, that the kind of power involved is, is merely like, like brute strength. Like the grave simply couldn't contain him. It, it just wasn't strong enough. Jesus was too powerful to stay dead. True enough. But there was another lack of power that sin and death had over Christ. It was, it was a lack of legitimacy. Death has power over those who are guilty of sin. And over him, it had no power. He condemned sin. Where we were condemned by our sin, Christ condemned sin itself in the flesh. And having done that work, he gives us the gift of the Spirit so that we might be sanctified. So Paul speaks of the Trinity and the Incarnation, but, but still what he has at the back of his mind is this question of how we ought to live in Christ, what it means to be set apart for Christ. It's Christ's obedience and not our own in which we are judged on the day of judgment. But we shouldn't draw the conclusion from that that obedience doesn't matter anymore. Right? We've seen already in the book of Romans that it would be a perversion of the gospel of grace to say something like we should sin so that grace may abound. Because of grace, it doesn't matter whether or not we're righteous. Of course it does. Grace doesn't free us from holiness. Grace inclines us to holiness, which is different. So the gift of the Spirit is given to us as a comfort in this life so that we might be conformed to the image of Christ. Because if we are in Christ, then we walk according to the Spirit and not the flesh, Paul says. If we are in Christ, then we live by the power of the Spirit and not the flesh. Because the power that justifies always sanctifies Because it is Reformation Sunday, I, I just want to close with one reflection on this text, which I think is it's important for a day like this. When you think about what sparked the Reformation and, and, and how this all got started, uh, the, the text that, that set the fire to the kindling is, is often uh, the just shall live by faith, right? quoted by Paul in chapter 1. If you were doing a a Reformation sermon, that would be a good text to choose. And you could talk about justification by faith as, as really the, the, the most important doctrine to emerge out of the Reformation. Uh, the Reformers 
would be quick to correct you and say, we didn't invent this stuff. We just helped to formulate what God had already placed in Scripture. But when we look back historically, we say, yeah, justification by faith, that is the linchpin of the Reformation. But I think in this text, you see what I would argue is a a fuller representation of what the Reformation was all about. Because here we see in this passage, in a short, succinct capsule, a picture of the activity of God, the work of God in every moment of our salvation, from beginning to end. And I would argue that that is the most important thing that the Reformation brought back into focus. The most important thing that it brought back, something that... that Sometimes we talk about as, as God's sovereignty, God's power over all things, God's uh, intention to glorify himself in all things. But specifically, when it comes to salvation, what, what is revealed in this text is God's intention to do it all on our behalf. And that is the greatest recovery of the Reformation and I would argue the greatest truth of the gospel that we can cling to. Even as people of faith, we have a tendency to be way too self-sufficient. To imagine we're much stronger and more capable, more knowledgeable than we truly are. Sometimes it's hard for us to even realize when we're lost, let alone to ask for directions having gotten directions to do the right thing with them. We're hopeless when it comes to this work of salvation. And that's okay. In our insufficiency, Christ proves all-sufficient. The most important truth, I think, that rings down to us through the centuries can be said very simply. That Jesus saves sinners, period. That Jesus saves sinners, period. No other explanation required. That he does it all. Whatever is necessary, whatever must be done, whatever must be understood, whatever we need, whatever we must do, all of it is supplied to us by Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for which we glorify and praise him. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.